Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. And on today's episode, we're going to answer some of your water questions. Or maybe there's some of Denny's water questions. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they're both. But we, brought it, we have out in the lounge today for you Martin Brungard, who uh, is here to tell us all we need to know about pH, or at least the basics that we need to know about pH. I hope it doesn't get too acidic. <laughs> no, man, it, it was a great conversation and definitely answered a lot of the questions that I had. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of all that stuff, please listen to a message from the people who make this show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. All-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com.
Welcome back, everybody. We are here in the Experimental Brewing Pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace. And we're having a couple beers, and Drew has one that's pretty darn interesting sounding. Yeah, well, first, let's back up and, and recognize what this means. That's right, folks, I'm having a beer. <laughs> yeah. Everything's Congratulations, back Congratulations, man. I'm, I'm glad to know that you're healthy again. Yep. At least for now, I'm healthy. So let's uh, let's continue to celebrate our good times and our healthy times. And my very first beer back, um, you know, I just talked about the folks at Eagle Rock and the fact they're going to do our IPA for us. Um, so I went and I visited them because they're my buds and they're nearby. And I sat down and I had a lovely tall glass of ginger saison. And they've had that beer on and off as like a rotating special for years now. And it's a it's a very pleasant 5.1% beer. Uh, 5.1% dry. It uses, I'm going to guess, a French Saison. No, actually, no, that's right. I take it back. It uses a blousey string because it carries a pear note to it, which I think is a good... That would be nice. Yeah, well, because it, it, it plays really nicely up against the ginger. And the ginger is more focused on sort of the soft aromatic elements of ginger and not the sort of big slap-you-in-the-face heat of ginger. And so what you get in this beer is dry cinnamon, pears, and ginger. So it's almost like a little uh, like a little uh, fancy pear tart in a glass. Wow. But while being very dry and drinkable. Yeah, man. So in the interest of fairness, are they also making a Marianne Saison? Yeah, I would tell you to get out, but this is our podcast. Get out. (laughs) I'm sorry, man. You you can't leave me openings like that and not expect me to take them. I can expect you to be a decent human being. (laughs) (laughs) I I try my best, but that involves bad puns, too. There you go. Bad puns are the lowest form of humor or something like that, and that's the reason why I make them all the time. Now, that's what I'm having as my welcome back. Uh, and uh, also, I'm trying to focus a lot on lower alcohol beers just because I think those are uh, a topic that deserve far more exploration than we've given them. Uh, but, Denny, you're not. No, I'm going the other way. Uh, I'm, I'm beginning to think that Paula maybe wants to get me out of the house because she came home from the grocery store the other day with a, a six-pack of bottom cutter and, and said, I-, I got this to help you get ready for Yakima. <laughs> I was like, oh, great. So she's already thinking about what it will be like when I'm gone. Huh? <laughs> but Bottom Cutter is indeed one of my favorites. It is a, a double IPA from Bale Breaker, and you guys all know how both of us love Bale Breaker beers. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, one of the things that I will be doing when we're in Yakima for Hop and Brew School is bringing home several cases of beer direct from the brewery. But it's a, an 8.2% beer, so yeah, it's not low alcohol. Uh, it uses uh, pale malt, Munich, uh, some crystal, uh, crystal tan, carapils even, and some corn sugar, which as far as I'm concerned, you kind of need for a double IPA. Uh, the hops are Citra, Simcoe, Equinot, Mosaic, and Warrior. Boy, now is that a lineup or what? I mean, uh, that, that sounds like a lot of legally required hops for an idea. <laughs> for, for that kind of beer, yeah. But, you know, what's really great to me uh, is that this beer has the B word. It has balance. It's a big beer with a lot of hops. But because they use the Munich, the Crystal, and the Carapils, 
it, it, it balances it out. Um, and of course, the, the sugar has to go in there because if you tried to get that the alcohol level with all malt, you'd lose the balance. It would end up being a, a really thick uh, mouthfeel on the beer. So as far as I'm concerned, this is probably one of the best Imperial IPAs I've had anywhere. Well, and my one-word review of Bottom Cutter is what it's always been, which is dangerous. Yes, it is dangerous. Uh, when I was first introduced to it, it was at, uh, at Hop and Brew School. We were sitting at the sports center one night after Hop and Brew School, I think uh, Jeff and Susan Rankert were there, and I'd, I'd had a, a top cutter, and then they said, oh, we've got bottom cutter, too, and I knew nothing about it, so uh, I sat there and drank three of them, and then I was very glad I was within walking distance of the hotel. Yeah, it's it, it's very, very drinkable in a way that makes it very easy to go through fast, so those are our beers that we're having, and yeah, it's kind of funny thinking of the sports center, which you just mentioned, which is one of our favorite places to go. Uh, and they've changed hands now and now build themselves as so-and-so's pizza at the sports center. Um, <laughs> but that brings me to this because I'm seeing more and more of what I call the pizza shop effect. And Jeff Allworth over at Beer Vana blog, he, he just wrote a, a piece talking about a couple of different breweries in Portland that have shut down and now have new breweries opening up in them. So, like, the big one that hit the news recently was West Coast Grocery is closing because they said they never really kind of recovered from the way they handled the sexual harassment case where their their head brewer sort of harassed a server and they kind of were very blasé in their response uh, to it. They, they say they never really recovered from that. Um, but it's being taken over and turned into a place called Grand Fur by the very, very talented... Uh, formerly of um, Tin Barrel, uh, Whitney Burnside, uh, and she is an extraordinary brewer. Um, and she and her husband are taking it over, and he's he's a restaurateur and like a famous chef. And so it's going to be, you know, a brewery slash actual restaurant with something more than burger and fries. Um, here in LA, Liberation Ales, which we talked to back on episode seventy-seven, so that was a while ago. They're, they shut down over the summer, and their former site there in Bixby Knolls down in Long Beach just literally opened as a brand new tap room and eventually a distillery for Beachwood Brewing, who we're about to talk about in the lounge uh, for a little bit. And you can hear Julian and Brew Files 88. Now, Eureka Brewing, which took over a former brew company called Z-Mix, which was a terrible name, uh, Eureka Brewing, just opened up a brand new tap room in a former dudes brewing tap room. Uh, and LA Ale Works from Brew Files 34 is taking over the recently shuttered indie brew company. So we're seeing this more and more, and it's what I call the pizza shop effect because every time a pizza store closes down, it seems like inevitably another pizza store opens up in its place. And now I'm seeing this with breweries and tap rooms, too. Yeah, you know, it, it really is amazing how that works. But on the other hand, it makes a whole lot of sense, too, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, you got to think, both a pizza store with its pizza ovens and a brewery with all the brewing equipment have sort of very capital-intensive things that have been installed and also right. take a fair amount of capital to uninstall. And so it makes perfect sense that it's like, oh, hey, that's just turnkey. Let's go use that thing. But it is very interesting to, for me to see this because 
I, I don't know about you, Denny, but I'm seeing more and more closures happening. And either of places that are really, really small, you know, like on the sort of the Nano S scale, or in places that have expanded out rapidly. And now we're starting to see that kind of shrink back. So it's, it's interesting, and I guarantee, my guess is that we're going to see a lot of this sort of pizza shop effect here in the future. Right. Yeah. I, I think so too, man. Uh, because like you, I, I keep seeing closures happening all the time. Um, you know, rapid expansion that happened kind of means that the, the, at least some closures are going to happen afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work out for everybody. So, you know, why not? Move into a place that's already all set up and ready to go for what you're doing mm-hmm. and hope that you're not the next closure. Well, and like a good example is, you remember we talked to the folks from Radiant uh, a few episodes back. Right. Lots of episodes back now. And Radiant took over the old Town Park Brewing Company in, in Anaheim, California. And the big reason for them to do that was instead of, I think the typical turnaround time from signing the lease to actually opening the doors for a brand new as built uh, brewery here in California at least in my area is about 18 months right so it takes 18 months to go from I have the keys to come have a pint for my taps uh, but when radiant took over town park they did it more along the lines of six months and so yeah it makes perfect sense even from just a capitalization point of view because guess what those 18 months aren't free <laughs> Yeah, really, man. You're paying on your loan the whole time, even though you're not bringing in any money. Yeah. So, I, like I said, I suspect we're going to see more and more pizza shop effect. I've seen it happen in the past to good effect, where, you know, like Green Cheek took over Valiant down in Orange, California, and, and they're now award-winning and fantastic. And I've also seen it done to bad effect. So, it's not surprising. The brewing industry is really the restaurant industry with a attitude. And we all know how risky restaurants are. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And now, speaking of things that aren't risky, or maybe they are, I don't know. What do you think? (laughs) Is it risky to redesign? Uh, No, man. Not not when they did it the way they did. Uh, An old classic has uh, a new look. Uh, uh, West Veteran, uh, one of... My favorite beers. Some people call it the best beer in the world. Uh, I don't know if I could pick a best beer in the world. But they have always uh, used unlabeled bottles. Well, I shouldn't say always. For, for quite a while, they've used unlabeled bottles. And the only way you could tell which of the three versions it was but was by the color of the cap. Uh, a, uh, a yellow, a green, or a blue cap, depending on the strength of the beer. And they actually have labeled the bottles now. And they're nice little labels. They're not large and garish. They're really reminiscent of uh, the graphics that were on the bottle cap. Oh, I wouldn't say they're reminiscent. I would say they basically took a picture of the bottle cap and blew it up and made it into a label. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. But uh, I, you know, I think it's very nice. I think it's a good idea. It's certainly not going to hurt anything. And uh, after you've had three or four, and you're sitting there with an open bottle, you'll be able to remember which one you're drinking. Yeah. It, to me, the thing I always liked with the Westie caps was they somehow managed to shoehorn in all the information that you needed, right, on that cap. You know, is this a, a 6 and 8 or, or 10, right, or 12? No. Westie. Uh, yeah, 10. 10. 12. Uh, it's a Westie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they fit in all the information that you need to know on that cap. Um, and everything else about it was just very clean and sort of classic and very old uh, feeling. 
and I'm really glad that I mean they they've had labels in the past when they did that that big sort of promotional push of West T12 here in in the states to be able to raise more money for the Abbey. Uh, those bottles, because of U.S. laws, had labels on them. Um, so it's nice to see them find a nice compromise or a good compromise, I should say, right between keeping the clean, old school look and still getting enough information out there. So. A little bit of marketing savvy, and maybe in a way, but I think a very smart redesign. Yeah, it, like I said, it's not garish in any way. It's very tasteful and uh, kind of maintains the dignity of the beers. Yeah, I just don't know how they're going to get it to stand out on the shelves amongst all those multicolored cans. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I think getting it to stand out on the shelves is the least of their worries. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking about standing out on the shelves, I included this one just because... I was kind of surprised. So we know that craft loggers, craft pilsners are becoming a thing, right? They've been becoming a thing for a few years now. And Anderson Valley, classic old uh, brewery up there in Northern California, their brewmaster, Fal Allen, just announced that they are going to be releasing a beer that they're calling The Pilsner. That's it, The Pilsner. Anderson Valley Brewing Company, The Pilsner. And it's got a big old picture of their... Their classic logo of the bear deer, a.k.a. the beer. Um, and it is, what surprised me about it is, it is Fallon Allen's first Pilsner that he's ever brewed. Whoa, really? Right, and Fallon Allen has been around the brewing industry for forever and a damn day. Yeah, so, uh, <laughs> when, he, when I started 25 years ago, he was already a legend. Yeah, I mean, he predates both of us. And so he uh, he's bringing out the Pilsner 5.2. He said he was inspired because of uh, judging Pilsners at the Great American Beer Festival. And this is what I thought was kind of very interesting is that, okay, so German Pilsner, so slightly more hot bitterness to it. Makes sense. But they actually put a full 60 days in terms of lagering time, um, which is kind of insane. I mean, there are not a lot of people who who take two months to turn a lager around. Uh, you know, these days you you hear a lot of people going, "Oh yeah, you know, we we get our pilsner out in four weeks," and so for them to take you know sixty days is uh, really kind of surprising to me. And I yeah. can't wait to taste this. Yeah, no kidding, man. I'm really anxious to try it too. I'm going to definitely be keeping my eyes open for that one. So there you go, the continuing rise of of the pilsners. The loggers, and may we all drink golden goodness. <laughs> okay. Hey, look, it's my show. I get to be purple whenever I want. All right, all right. And speaking of uh, of being purple, I think it's time for us to go to the brewery. It is indeed. Uh, we're going to head over to the brewery. Drew's going to talk about what's going on in his brewery world, and we'll be right back. The 6th Annual Pink Boots Blend from Yakima Chief Hops is now available in homebrewer sizing on our website. A portion of the sales will be donated to the Pink Boots Society in support of its mission to provide educational opportunities to women and non-binary individuals in the fermented and alcoholic beverage industry. This year's Pink Boots Blend consists of laurel, Equinot and HBC 586. The blend is a punchy bouquet of bright citrus and tropical fruits. 
Laurel brings in zesty lemon and floral notes, then Equinot and HBC 586 come in and further drive the tropical citrus, adding stone fruit and bubblegum. Place your order today at yakimachief.com slash pink boots blend and brew your own pink boots blend beer. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Choose your own brew venture. Join for one year and receive a complimentary brewing book to match your beer journey. Select from more than 60 books, including our favorite, Simple Homebrewing, Great Beer, Less Work, More Fun, written by Denny and Drew. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and treat your shelf to a new brewing book. Get offer details at homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental. Welcome to the brewery, where we're sitting here and watching Drew set up all his new stuff. Tell us about it. Well, okay, so again, with the continuing saga of redoing my garage to make it into both an office and an actual proper brewery space, um, here's the update. Who knew that trying to put together a mini-split AC unit could be so damn annoying? So apparently, whatever unit this is, it's from Samsung. And my AC guys missed a cap that they needed to seal off the third port on the compressor. And so they had to order that. Oh, and I think, wow. Yeah. So they had to order that because they lost the coolant, naturally. Um, and I don't know. I think it was on an outrigger canoe from Korea because it took like two weeks for it to get here. Um, and then now my, now the compressor is storing some sort of code and they have to talk to a tech support people in order to actually get it to finally fire up. So who knew mini oh, splits man. could be so damn annoying. Oh. I'm so sorry you had incompetent work people. Well, I mean, they're they're fairly nice people. I just don't know what the hell's going on there. Um, <laughs> uh, but yes, and and of course, this is coinciding with the fact I wanted to be out there working now, and it's 97 degrees out, which means that it's not very practical to go sit in my garage because the garage gets warmer. Um, be nice to have that AC running, folks. Um, because the other thing it also turns out that I've discovered is that I like staining wood. Who knew? <laughs> I I can see a new career coming here. Yeah. Uh, Well, they definitely get high from all those uh, stain fumes. But so uh, my contractor, the brewery has is built out of old Douglas fir. Right. And over the nearly 100 years that garage has been up, the Douglas fir has gotten this really wonderful sort of brownish oxidation kind of look and feel to it. And so we're kind of running with that as a theme because even though we covered up all the rafters, there's still this large partition wall. That's kind of like a, a triangular support wall towards the rear of the brewery. And if you look at photos of the garage, you'll see what I'm talking about. 
And the windows are also made of that same old Douglas fir. And so my contractor went around. He got brand new Douglas fir, which is all nice and pleasantly orangish and fresh looking. And he cut it down to size and made all the baseboards and made the casings for the four windows in the brewery out of that stuff. And I kept looking at it going, well, you know, that's really cool. But now it really kind of throws a, a weird contrast in the room because it's got all this bright orangish fresh Doug fur sitting right up against all this old oxidized aged Doug fur. And so I took it on myself to go explore the aisles of Minwax colors. And by the way, does Home Depot no longer carry Minwax? doesn't seem to. Um, but I found uh, the right Minwax color, and I spent the better part of a weekend on my f- knees and on my butt and standing up with a brush and staining massive feats of already installed baseboards. By the way, if you're going to stain wood for bases and cases, <laughs> do it before it gets installed. Please. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I didn't have a choice. So I spent the entire weekend uh, doing that, getting high on Minwax fumes. Uh, but I'll tell you what, now that it's all stained, it looks fantastic. And that leaves me one last job to do in the brewery that's construction-related, other than waiting on the new garage doors, is that partition wall that I just mentioned. It's got all sorts of spackle dust and, and some paint chips from the drywall guys and the painters. So i got to get up there, and I'm sanding it. And once I sand and kind of knock off a lot of the dirt and a little bit of that oxidation, I'm going to go back through and uh, rub it down with teak oil. So it gets a nice glow and sheen to it. So oh. so you've been doing all this stuff and you haven't brewed in your brewery yet? No, because uh, I'm still waiting on a couple of things. Like one of, the other, one of the other problems I want to uh, get solved is I need to find a way that I want to uh, sort of suspend or not suspend – Make a nice stand for the fermenters I have because Dewey, Cheatham, and Hound need to need to have a place of I don't know glory and display. I want to put this. I want to make something so that they can have a nice place to stand and have them slightly elevated too, so I don't have to bend over to try and get my beer out of there. Um, so that's part one of what I got to do. And the other one is I still don't have a good solution yet for what I'm going to do to keep the kegs cold now that I no longer have a chest freezer. <laughs> yeah, man. To me, that seems like a a major omission there. That was a battle I lost. I won the battle of the partition wall, and I won the battle of the sink. Um, I just I put it out in the backyard then. Yeah. So got to figure that out, and I'm I'm trying to look around for some clever ideas, and maybe I can build something into that school uh, that that front office desk that I talked about in the last episode. Uh, but yeah, we got to got to find a good way to actually keep the beer cold, so I can have some serving temperature temperatures. Get a, for get a chest freezer and cover it with something so it looks nice. That's my other thought. Uh, just get a smaller one. So yeah, that's where the brewery is because I'm still wanting to make that mild cream saison and annoy Denny by bringing that into existence. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, whatever. You're making it. I'm not. So yes, but yeah. you're going to have to drink it at some point. And you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> okay, if, if I have to. Oh shucks. Now. That's my stupid misadventures. Uh, so the other thing I wanted to talk about was the AHA's uh, put up an article on the website, homebrewersassociation.org, uh, from Shauna Cormier, who she's on the governing committee. She served with Denny for, uh, for a while. And the whole article was about uh, when to dump your beer or when not to dump your beer. And it got me thinking about it because there is sort of like this weird thing that you'll see a lot of people say, well, I've never dumped a beer. 
you know, indicating that they've never had any problems with their beers in the past. Or you got the other people who are like, I'd never dump a beer. That's alcohol abuse. Uh, in which case you might want to talk to a counselor. Um, yeah. Or the people who say, uh, you know, I'm going to drink this beer just to punish myself for brewing. And it's like, man, that is stupid beyond belief. Well, and I get like drinking a couple of examples of the beer just so you can learn what really went wrong. But yeah, forcing yourself to down a whole five gallon keg of beer just because you screwed up doesn't seem like a very wise plan. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've dumped beer because I screwed it up and something was wrong with it. I've dumped more beer just because I, I wasn't drinking it. I didn't really care for it that much. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I've totally dumped beer because I was bored of it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, not, not even, not even bored with it. you brew something. It's like, I recall the last wit beer I brewed several years ago. Uh, I got it all kegged. I had a pint and said, you know, I don't think I really like this style. I had another pint and said, I, I'm pretty sure I don't like this style. Waited a couple of weeks, had another one, and it's like, this thing's out of here. Yep. Yeah, well, and, and that's that's fair. You know, like sometimes you might brew something because you're trying to learn how the style works. And then or, yeah, you yeah. Have, and you have that realization of like, yeah, this is not my cup of tea. Yeah, exactly. So I would be curious to hear from people what you've dumped in the past and why you've dumped beer in the past. You know, I've dumped beer because it was bad. I've dumped beer because I was bored of it. I've dumped beer because, like Denny, I just was like, and eh, no. And I've dumped beer because, damn it, I need a keg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've done I've done that too. So it's like, so which one of those do I really not like? And it's like, well, probably the one that you haven't had a pint of for three weeks. There you go. So tell us what you've dumped or why you've dumped or why you've never dumped in your life. Um, and you can just email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Okay, we're going to head over to the lounge and talk to Martin about water and pH. We'll be right back. The Y-East yeast strains that spurred the craft beer revolution four decades ago are still among Brewmaster's favorites today. That's why we handpicked our most popular strains used in some of the best craft beers today to feature alongside our private collection release. The new Legacy Curation showcases 2124 Bohemian Lager, known for being one of the most versatile lager strains in the world and equally suitable for cold IPAs and Italian Pilsners. For a classic German Kolsch or experimental pseudo-lager, the 2565 Kolsch strain is proven to produce the best qualities of ales and lagers in a wide temperature range. Complementing these strains are 2272 PC North American Lager and 2352 PC Munich Lager II for the winter season. Head over to yeastlab.com for our latest brewing advice and recipes. Let's get brewing. The next generation of countertop home distillation systems is here. The all-new Airstill Pro from Still Spirits is a revolutionary still that will look right at home alongside your everyday kitchen appliances. This small-batch 2-in-1 distillation system operates in either pot still or reflex mode and allows you to craft high-quality light and dark spirits at home. No hoses, no complicated assembly, just plug-and-play. The Airstill Pro column cools itself with a built-in high-powered fan. 
The Still Spirits Air Still Pro is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer. Learn more about the Air Still Pro at stillspirits.com or check them out on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Welcome to the lounge, everybody. We have our friend Martin Brengard here today uh, to talk about pH and water and all that kind of stuff because I had some questions and I don't know of anybody I would rather take advice from. So thank you for joining us, Martin. Thank you, Denny. And good to hear from you too, Drew. Hey. Hey, there he is. So uh, let's kind of just dive right in. Uh, like I said, a lot of these questions uh, come from my uh, renewed interest in checking pH, and uh, a lot of them come from stuff I've seen online. And the first one is a question that comes up continuously. What is the best temperature to measure pH? Well, wort pH should be measured at the temperature at which you calibrated your your pH meter. So I recommend that people keep their equipment and their uh, calibration solutions in the in their brewery out, you know, uh, at, at the room temperature that you have right now. And when it comes to uh, measuring your wart temperature, uh, do that wart temperature measurement at the same temperature as your your typical room temperature. And of course, you know you're you're taking your wart out of the mash, um, and you're having to cool it down. <laughs> right. And yeah. You you could do it the long way and let it sit there forever. <laughs> To come to room temperature, or you could put it in a a uh, a cooling bath or a cooling medium of some sort to get it down the room temperature very quickly, and that's what I do. So, uh, so the the bottom line is room temperature, whatever that temperature may be. So that's that's the question I was going to follow up with here. Whatever that temperature may be. So, like, if my garage is forty degrees in the winter, that's what I want to measure it at? Well, unfortunately, well, <laughs> you, you raise a, a very interesting point that, uh, yeah, the, the typical, I mean, typical habitable rooms are going to fall in the <laughs> <laughs> 20 to 25 degrees centigrade, which is, I think that's around mid sixties to, upper 70s right so uh i i guess i would couch it that way so to tip more typical around uh you know in the 70s uh uh more than likely 60 to 70s so, so in other words so temperatures like- where you neither feel the need to wear a parka nor you know sweat 
Yes. Okay, right. So, so you're talking like a typical indoor room temperature in reasonably temperate weather, right? Correct. Okay, so that that makes a lot of sense, and uh, it's something that I can remember. If I mean, when my garage is uh, forty degrees in the winter, uh, I usually keep all my pH measuring stuff indoors until I need to bring it out and use it. So I guess that's well, uh, and 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 in that case, uh, definitely whatever that indoor temperature was that you did all that calibration work at, that's the temperature you want to do your uh, wart pH measurement. So chill your so, your wart down to that temperature. So, uh, I mean, I know that like hydrometers, you know, are calibrated to a certain temperature. For a pH meter, though, what you're saying is that since you're calibrating it yourself, use a, a moderate normal temperature and then make sure the wart is at the same temperature when you measure it. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, most uh, high-quality uh, calibration solutions, they actually have uh, curves that are printed uh, on the, the solution labels that tell you, okay, if you're, if you're doing your calibration at uh, 25 degrees centigrade, well, now you're shooting for a, a pH of 4.0 one or you know 4.03 or something like that and you know you 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 keep adjusting your meter until it reads that temperature or i'm sorry ph and you're good uh so all those vagaries of temperature are actually uh sort of calibrated out with your your calibration procedure okay that that's great. Uh, now my, my pH meter, you know, has like a, like an auto calibration on it. You know, I just push the button and it reads it and calibrates. Is that going to be reliable for me in, in that instance? Should be. Okay. Uh, yeah. For, for instance, I, my, my, uh, uh, Hannah meters do exactly that. So. Right. It's good to know. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I like that a lot better than when I had to keep turning the little screw on the one that I had previously. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I never really was able to trust that thing. And so at least when I can just push a button to calibrate it, it's like, well, it may be off, but at least it'll be consistently off. That And that counts for a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course, man. Uh, you know, it, consistency may be the hobgoblin of small minds, but it's also uh, very handy when you're trying to measure something. Yep. So so I, I think that I've, I've seen you write that pH will shift during the course of the mash. And, and if that's the case, is there really any point in measuring mash pH? And if so, when should you measure it? Uh, yes, indeed. Well, as <laughs> most as most brewers uh, know, uh, it, it does take uh, many minutes to actually extract uh, the starch and the sugars out of your your grist, mm -hmm. and it turns out that that starch and sugar has a huge buffering power. So it's not a surprise that pH does shift during uh, during the mashing process. So, and I, and I can tell you that it's it's many tenths of a, a unit that it'll shift. Uh, so, 
to answer, but to answer your question, yes, there is a, uh, a desirable time. And I find that, uh, you know, you, you really need to, uh, be, I, well, I'll tell you what I do. I measure every 15 minutes. So at 15 okay. minutes, 30 minutes, uh, 45 minutes and 60 minutes, uh, I typically only mash in, in, on that order of, uh, time. Mm-hmm. And I do see a progression of pH throughout that, uh, time. And along with that, I, uh, am also collecting gravity samples and watching that change also. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I find that at about the 45 minute stage, uh, that's when pH becomes very consistent. Uh, so from 45 to 60 minutes and beyond, there, there is no more change. So for those people who say, oh, we'll check the pH in the first uh, few minutes of the mash and, uh, uh, adjust based on that. Yeah. Sorry guys. You, well, you're, you're completely wrong. Well, so that leads me to wonder, okay, so if pH doesn't solidify or stabilize until late in the mash, and we're always sitting there talking about, oh, you know, you need to really get your mash pH dialed in so you can maximize your enzyme efficiency and this, that, and the other. What, I mean, if I can't trust that my pH is stable until that, until that end, is getting the mash pH right then just a matter of you know, sort of repeated trials, and then eventually you you get it so that it will stay right through the mash, or what are we doing then? Well, of course, uh, mash pH changing has been uh, with brewers for millennia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not something that just popped up. Yeah, so so that, that change went on before brewers actually knew that it was changing, and uh, uh, it really doesn't matter that it's changing uh it's the 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 important thing is that you have created conditions that are going to result in a good beer at the end and that's why uh em- employing a good uh ph calculation software uh or methodology whatever it is uh or experience uh is very helpful. You just, you know, a, a back in the old days, the uh, brewers knew that, okay, we have to use, uh, you know, we, we have to put in so much of sour good into this, uh, 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 strike water in order to get, uh, to, to produce a good beer. And that's what they did. Right. You know, they, they, they just know from experience. Uh, and of course they all apprentice and they knew how to do it just by experience. They said, okay, that didn't work well enough. Let's add a little bit more. Nowadays, we get to use uh, calculations and software, and that gets us much closer, um, especially when you're not brewing the same beer time after time after time. So uh, using the software is the way to uh, help ensure that you're going to get to the right spot. It might not be at that spot at five minutes in or 10 minutes in, but hopefully at the 45 to 60 minute point, <laughs> you know, you're, you're at the pH that you're targeting. And, and that's when you really need to pay attention to pH. That's when it's, that's when it's real. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's important that people 
think in terms of you're not making a pH number, you're making a beer, right? Yes. And, which is what you're saying, yes. you know. Uh, the, the pH number doesn't matter if the beer turns out well. And that has kind of been, been my philosophy, my, my methodology. Um, I use, uh, I use your software, Brunewater, and I have found when I do what it tells me, it, the beer turns out to be really good and I like it. So I don't worry about actually checking my pH and seeing what the number is cause, cause I don't care cause <laughs> I'm making beer. I'm not making pH numbers. As the pH shifts during the mash, does it go up or down? It actually depends on what you're brewing. So for instance, uh, if you're brewing a, a very pale beer and more than likely you're having to drive the P, uh, pH, uh, of the strike water down quite a bit. And, and by da- quite a bit, I mean a lot. Uh, in, in many cases, uh, the pH of that strike water will be well below four. And at, when you add the grain and all its buffers come into play, then it buffers upwards to your targeted temperature or a pH, right. you know, probably in that mid five range. But if you're uh, brewing a very dark beer and you had to uh, add some sort of alkali, like uh, say a lime or uh, baking soda, well, baking soda doesn't really change pH that much, but, but lime water certainly would, that would drive the pH of that strike water up uh, appreciably. And then you would actually see pH come down as the extract is brought out of the grist. So, uh, so there's no set, uh, response here. It comes down right. for dark grains. It goes up for, for pale grist. And, and that makes perfect sense when you just actually stop to think about yep. it, which I hadn't done before. <laughs> I, I see a lot of people like, adjusting their pH pre-boil after the mash. Um, is there a, a target that I'm shooting for? Does it, again, depend on the type of beer? Um, you know, if, if I'm going to start checking my pre-boil pH, what should I be looking for? Well, it's, it's, it's not a fixed target. It really depends on uh, what your grist is. If you've got a lot of pills malt, uh, that means the, the very palest of malts in your, uh, in your grist. There's the potential that there is a, a good deal of the SMS, the, the DMS precursor in that, uh, wort mm-hmm. now. And for that reason, uh, you, you may want to target a, a higher, uh, wort pH, uh, for the pre-boil. Uh, and that would be probably in the five Point four five point five range, and what that does, that higher pH actually helps uh, the conversion of SMS to that DMS, you know, the the corny uh, flavor that you probably don't want in your beer. Uh, and right. of course, it's that conversion from SMS to DMS that's important. But then, of course, you have to the boil, you have to get the DMS out with the boil, but. There's there's two processings going on there, the conversion and the expulsion. Now, if you were brewing, uh, say, a, a beer that was, had little or no pale, pills malt in it, 
then you may very well want to target a, a, a slightly lower pH. Uh, you, you don't want to go too terribly low. Uh, I, I would suggest nothing lower than about a 5.2. Right. Um, but you know, with that, it, well, in, in that five point, say 5.2 pH, uh, if you are adding a lot of hops to your wort, uh, that helps reduce that extraction of the polyphenols from the the hop uh, vegetative matter. So that might be a good thing. Um, maybe a, wow. something you want want to target. So you know, th- there's there's lots of answers here, uh, but there's certainly not a fixed target. But I believe that with with at least those two criteria that I just gave you, uh, I think that that will help. Uh, guide brewers to properly targeting a pre-boil pH. Yeah, man. Like you said, there may not be a target, a specific target, but there are definitely kind of like guidelines, and that's really fascinating to know that in a, a lighter beer, you're going to want to make your pre-boil slightly higher and in a darker beer, slightly lower. Um, to, to me, that's kind of like counterintuitive, so uh, I'm really glad to have the explanation there. Sure. Um, and then I also see people adjusting uh, pH post-boil. Is that something you deal with at all? Not typically. Uh, but, for instance, if you were dealing with, uh, you know, brewing a, a, a grist with high pills content and you had to, you know, uh, target a, a much higher uh, pre-boil pH and the boiling process didn't bring the pH down, you know, down into the, say, 5.2 range or, or a little bit lower, you know, then you might want to go ahead and post-acidify, uh, you know, in, in, in typical continental European practice, it would uh, be the addition of sourgut in order to acidify that wort uh, a little bit further. Uh, so that that's the only time I would really do it. Uh, although, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, also do sours and they might want to pre-acidify uh, j- just to help get it through that uh Danger zone, uh, between roughly the low five to the, uh, 4.5 range where then the, the lact, the pH can actually be a sanitizer and, and, uh, avoid the, uh, impact of those, those wart or, uh, yeah, wart spoiling, uh, organisms. Right. Now, now, Drew, you've talked about somebody adjusting uh, pH in their IPAs. Was that Beachwood? Yeah, that was Julian Trago at Beachwood. Because that's what I thought, and, and he makes stunning IPAs. Uh, what, what can you tell us about that process? Well, in my opinion, uh, well, I, I've heard. I'm not a big IPA brewer, but I've heard from numerous sources that you know throwing hops into uh, uh, finished beer tends to raise the beer pH, and that's not uh, something that people really uh, enjoy because it, it flattens out the flavor. And And I am not surprised at all that uh, IPA brewers that are adding a lot of dry hops to their, their beers 
do probably need to do some post uh, fermentation uh, acidification to bring that beer a little bit closer to a, a more refreshing and refined uh, flavor. Yeah, and and Julian makes some of the best IPAs that that I've had. Uh, do you know exactly what he's doing, Drew? Uh, well, yeah, I, what he's doing is when he comes out of the boil kettle and uh, does his whirlpool, he'll add acid at that point to to drop the pH in anticipation of the pH climb that will happen when he dry hops. Oh, okay, sounds good. Yeah, and and he's a yeah. he's a big big proponent of that, and I will tell you that those Beechwood IPAs. Always have, a, oh, yeah, I mean, they have a, a very distinctive crispness to them, and the 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 hops kind of pop a little bit better. Yeah. Now he makes some of the best West Coast IPAs that I have ever had, and occasionally Drew will send one up, and I always look forward to that. Um, do either of you guys know why adding hops uh, would raise the pH? I do not. Uh, I'm assuming that there must be some sort of buffering action going on there, but I don't know the what the mechanism is. I, I've heard a lot of people surmise that adding hops actually lowers the pH because they have alpha acid. Uh, yeah, yeah. And- uh, alpha acids are are <laughs> very weak, and uh, at at a beer pH, you know, down in the uh, four range. Alpha acids are completely ineffective. They they would never enter the pH equation. So, right. so that that is a fallacy. Yeah, th- that's the way I've always looked at it too. So I'm I'm glad that I'm not the only one telling them that the, they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that's always kept me from doing that though is knowing how much, like say, acid. To add to bring it down is is it just a trial and error process? Do I just do a little bit and check it, or is is there some way to actually calculate what I should do? Well, I can tell you that uh, the the calculations within brewing water uh, are calibrated to wort uh, chemistry. And beer chemistry mm-hmm. is quite a bit different. I, I have found that the hard way. <laughs> so you can't, you <laughs> cannot use brewing water uh, to, you know, predict a pH change for a certain uh, amount of acid used or uh, added to a an amount of beer. So my experience is I always do a literally a, 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 a you know, drop by drop in a glass and scale that. To the batch size, right? Um, uh, I'm sure there probably is. Uh, I, well, I, I guarantee you there uh, there is a uh, a likely uh, correlation uh, for acid addition and and beer pH change. Uh, I, I just haven't explored that. And again, going right. back to Julian, he he just targets a specific pH coming out of the kettle or, you know, going into the fermenter. So I think if I remember correctly, he post-acidifies to get to 5.1 when he goes into the fermenter. And so I think for him, he over time, he's just worked out, you know, that's X number of milliliters of this acid, right? Uh, And and he can can do that and then make adjustments based on, you know, what he actually reads on the the wort as it's chilled. 
And because he's right. dealing with a, a pre-fermentation wort, uh, the correlations uh, used in brewing water are uh, useful for, you know, uh, predicting pH change. So you can literally uh, say you have a, a batch of, uh, you know, a couple of uh, barrels of beer that you need to uh, run the pH down on, and uh, you can run that calculation in as a wort uh, calculation in brewing water and, you know, uh, start dialing uh Acid additions and and see how much that pH change is, and that is likely to be fairly accurate. Wow, that's that's very interesting. I'm gonna have to uh, pull out Brunewater and start playing around with that and see see what I can come up with. Uh, you know, I, and I guess one thing I, I didn't mention earlier on was uh, this whole discussion was predicated on the fact that. Uh, I don't do strict batch sparging anymore now that I'm using the grain father. It's kind of like a, a combination of, of batch and uh, and fly sparging. So I decided, that given that, I would start uh, adjusting my sparge pH, which I had never done before when I was just strictly batch sparging. So now that that I know that I, I can look at the the post mash uh post boil work and uh, and use brewing water to adjust that too uh this is going to like open up whole new realms of confusion for me yeah and as uh, as i've mentioned in the past uh if you're in it it's really particularly uh, uh applicable to people who have uh their their tap water has a, a high alkalinity um, you know, people might be using, uh, something like, uh, acid malt or what, uh, whatnot to bring the pH of their, uh, their mash into the proper range. But if you're using, uh, an untreated raw, uh, tap water that has high alkalinity, uh, to, to sparge with, Boy, that can really extract a lot of tannins and silicates out of your grist, and 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 that's a, a real bugaboo. So uh, that's why there's a special calculator within Bruin Water uh, that's aimed particularly at sparging water because you want to bring that sparging water alkalinity down to at least under uh, 50 par- parts per million as calcium carbonate. Uh, but I, I personally, I target 25 ppm, uh, alkalinity as calcium carbonate. Okay. And, and that's, uh, virtually guaranteed to avoid any sort of, uh, tannin or silicate extraction. And for those of you that are, uh, uh, brewing with something like distilled water or an RO water, yeah, don't, don't worry about it. Your, your water has already got very low alkalinity. You don't have to do anything to your sparging water. You're good. <laughs> I'm always surprised at how much acid I have to add to my sparge water because it's just like, man, really? All right. So do you know what your alkalinity is, Drew? If I pulled up my coffee of brewing water, I could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so my, my well water comes in at 96. 
So I need to, obviously I should be doing something with it. Um, and seeing that, that you recommend 25, uh, that's a, that's a really good target to have in mind. Yep. And, and it's interesting, you know, because when I batch sparged, I never adjusted my, my sparge water and I didn't really detect any problems. Uh, although I think that now that I am adjusting it, uh, I, I think that maybe it is making a difference. It's hard to say because I've changed my entire, you know, brewing system and, and the way that I do it. So it, it's difficult to make a direct comparison, but, uh, I'm not disliking what comes out the other end. I, I think maybe even my beers are a little clearer. Does that make sense? I guess it's possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, you know, I could be just making it all up to, uh, you, you could know, be suffering from confirmation bias. That's our favorite thing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm too lazy to actually do back to back batches and find <laughs> out. So, <laughs> yeah. and, and by the way, for the record, my, uh, my alkalinity, at least according to my coffee brewing water here that Martin and I worked on in a show of the brew files is 155. Okay. And that's, that's, so uh, as, as calcium carbonate. Yep. As calcium carbonate. Okay. Yep. Speaking, speaking of calcium carbonate, this would probably be a good time to mention that, uh, that's not a good thing to use for adjusting, uh, your, your, uh, your mash, is it? No, calcium carbonate, uh, aka chalk, <laughs> uh, is not very soluble. Um, you would have to, uh, do a lot of interesting, uh, effort to, to get it to dissolve. And for most brewers, that's really not worth your time. So, uh, I, I highly recommend not using calcium carbonate, uh, in any of your brewing or any of your mashing products. Uh, but, but it, it can still be useful in, in brewing and in beer and cider and mead making because, uh, calcium carbonate will dissolve in beer and mead and cider because, of course, they have much stronger acids. Whereas the acids that are present in a mash and in the, uh, in, in typical water, uh, strike water, uh, aren't strong enough to actually dissolve the calcium carbonate. So that's why, you know, that's, you, you don't use it in the mash, but you can use it in a beer or a finished fermented beverage. Right. Right. It's interesting to hear you mention it in cider too. I make uh, cider every year when our apples come in and I'd never even considered that, but I don't really know what I'm doing when I make cider. Well, you know, I've never even really looked at the pH. And, and I would be surprised if any cider maker would ever need to add, uh, calcium carbonate to, to bring the pH of your finished cider up. Uh, more typically we're, we're, driving it down just a little bit more uh, because maybe you didn't uh, use as, as uh, tart an apple as maybe you could, you, you would have wanted. Well, and not to mention the fact that in comparison to beer, cider is almost always going to be way more acidic and, you know, and have a much yeah. higher TA than, than most beers that would ever dream exactly. of. Exactly, exactly. But the, yeah, my my cider is definitely very acidic. But but the, there are the cases where okay, I I kind of overdid it somehow, and okay, you you can certainly use calcium carbonate to fix that problem. 
And of course, I'm going to have to try some. Of that. And exactly, I I, uh, I suggest that you do it. Uh, you know, small amounts in a glass, and see see if there was an improvement or not. Yeah, right. That's the way I, I generally go about it. Ever since you had uh, mentioned you can do that uh, for for both uh, sulfates and uh, and and uh, you know to to raise the pH, I do it first in a glass to see what I'm going to get and to try and get a handle on the amount to use. Yep. So is there is there any other pH info we haven't covered here that people need to know, some general overarching principle? Well, I, you know, it, it, it can make a very stark difference in the beer. Uh, one thing that I'd like uh, your uh, listeners to recognize is that you know just because you can brew a certain style very well doesn't mean that you can brew other styles very well with that same water in that same procedure. Uh, differing grists require different uh, uh, water chemistry in order to result in a, a really great beer. You can, you'll, you will be able to make beer, but you probably won't be able to make great beer without, uh, doing a little something extra for your water. And remember that, that water is the largest component of your, your beer. So getting it, uh, better situated, uh, for your particular, uh, batch that you're brewing at the moment will definitely make a difference. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of showed that to myself because for many years I didn't deal with water at all. And I discovered that kind of my, my mid-color beers, you know, IPAs, stuff like that, amber ales, were, were just great. But my lighter colored beers were just maybe a touch flabby yeah. and my darker color beers were just kind of a touch bitey. You know what I'm talking about there? Mm-hmm. Um and and once I started adjusting, especially things like pilsners and triples, just really started coming to life. Oh my! So. And, and it's a such a stark difference. Uh, that's that's one of the elements that I find when I visit a, a new brew pub or a brewery that doesn't uh, attend to their their uh, water chemistry very well. Those pale beers tend to be very dull and flabby, uh, not the crisp and bright that you really expect out yeah. of those styles. That that's a real indicator that hey, you you guys need to you know pay a little more attention. Yeah, right. Well, and again, I've proven it to myself because uh, you know I'm, I've got a German pills on right now, and where I uh, actually did uh, pay attention to the sparge water pH and everything like that, and. It may be about the best German pills I've ever made. I'm I'm real happy with it. So that that was kind of like the impetus behind this this whole conversation is that it, I, I was so impressed by that beer after adjusting my sparge water, I wanted to find out more about it. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today, Martin, and the other day too, even though we didn't get anything done. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> So, thanks a bunch, man. Enjoy the rest of your weekend, and uh, are we going to see you in San Diego uh, next summer? Well, there's always a possibility, but no no guarantees. Okay, well, hope so. Thanks again, man. Take it easy. Take care, guys. Thank you. Okay. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. 
the Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's time to get this show on the road or off the road or however you want to look at it. Uh, I don't think we have any questions this time, do we? Nope, no questions nope. today. But uh, don't forget, you can get your questions in at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. We like having opportunities to figure out uh, what we don't know. <laughs> yeah, and to show you guys what we don't know. Yep. So uh, it's time for the quick tip and something other, and it looks like Drew has both of them. Yeah, so my quick tip is, as with all things chemical-related, you know, whether it be brewing sanitizers, brewery cleaners, or other compounds, it's usually a good idea to wear gloves when you're working with them. And this lesson brought to you the courtesy of the fact that even though I've washed my hands 900 times since working with teak oil yesterday, my hands still smell like teak oil. It's very distracting to the beer world. So all the, all the beers you drink are going to taste like teak oil now. Yes, it'd be like I'm sitting on the on the deck of a ship. But you know uh, what you need to do, man? Drink your beer with a straw so you can keep your hands behind your back. <laughs> <laughs> right? Huh? huh? Am I thinking here? Some people would call that thinking. <laughs> but not the kind of people you associate with. Exactly. So <laughs> gloves are a pain in the fatukas, but you know what? It's better than your hands uh, smelling or worse yet, your hands falling off. So <laughs> make sure you actually go wear gloves. I just hate it when my hands fall off. I know. It, it makes it very hard to do anything. All right. Okay. So what do you have for something other for us today? Something other is a documentary that I just finished watching the other day. It's available to, on Showtime. And I think on Hulu and a couple of other places came out last year. It's called Under the Volcano, and it's all about the history of Air Montserrat. And if you don't know what Air Montserrat is, uh, Air is the recording company that was set up by George Martin. You may know George Martin, right? Denny? Yeah, I, I think I've heard of him. Yeah, you know, probably most famous for his association with that little band called the Beatles. And he set up a series of studios all called Air. I think it was like Artist Independent Recording or something like that. And um, Under the Volcano very specifically explores Air Montserrat, which was in business for about 10 years before like a giant hurricane came through and damaged the island in a lot of ways. And it's that 10-year period where it was pretty much like, oh, hey, you guys want to go record an album in the middle of nowhere? Go for it. We'll, we'll give you money so you can go live there for a while. And in that documentary they cover like some of the different albums that were made there like dire straits brothers in arms you know the first album digitally recorded digitally uh, produced and digitally mixed mm -hmm. 
uh, and, you know, became like a big CD thing. Uh, Police, uh, two of their albums were there, Ghost in the Machine and Synchronicity. Uh, Duran Duran did uh, Seven Against the Ragged Army. Uh, the Stones recorded there for the first time in 900 years. Elton John, like all these big names that, that you know. And the documentary is all talking about, you know, that particular studio, that time, and the vibes that they got from recording there, and the fact that George Martin wasn't very happy with the police for dancing on his mixing board (laughs) uh, for one of their videos. And, you know, you look at it and you realize this is like millions and millions of dollars of of equipment that they're dancing on. And But it was just really cool to see that particular period and, and... George Martin, who had been quoted as saying that the reason that he never rebuilt the studio after the hurricane was by the time of that that happened, which was 1989, all the record labels had basically said, no, no, we don't want you guys gallivanting around the world. We want to be able to put our thumbs on you and make sure that you're doing it. And so they concentrated the recordings back again in L.A., New York, Nashville, etc., instead of like, here, Paul McCartney, go record an album in Nigeria. Um, band on the run, by the way. And... Um, so just that one period of time and really kind of cool to see and also to realize just how much music from my childhood came from this one particular place. You know, speaking of the police, I ran across an interesting looking documentary the other day. I haven't watched it yet, uh, but it's called Surviving the Police uh, based on uh, Andy Summers' memoir. And uh, it, it looks like it could be pretty interesting. Yeah, particularly because... Well, and they interview Andy and Stuart Einstein in the documentary Under the Volcano. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of funny because at one point, I guess they were having real troubles kind of connecting during uh, synchronicity. Right. And, and, and Andy Summers was sitting there kind of puffing himself up in the documentary like, you know, like, oh, yeah, you know, he was like one of the real aggressive ones. And, you know, and going and talking to George Martin and, and Martin telling him, you're adults, you can work it out. Uh, but I, I had a good laugh because of the three egos that were in the police, I do not think of Andy Summers as being the biggest of them. <laughs> no, no, you, you don't. So <laughs> very interesting. All right. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Also, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing, or on Facebook, or on Instagram. Uh, I hang out on a lot of different forums, uh, the AHA Discussion Forum. You can find me over on Facebook a lot. You can find Drew on the uh, Homebrewing subreddit and the Slack Homebrewing channel. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, we have a phone number where you can leave us a voicemail or send us a text. It is 626-765-1AL. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.